Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast for Hope City Church. We pray the word of God leaves you encouraged and hopeful today. Open with me to Psalm 103. If you are uh, using one of the Bibles that we've provided, that would be page 344. Page 344, Psalm 103. One commentary that I read this week said that Psalm 103 may be the Mount Everest of praise psalms. It exalts the soul to breathtaking heights, he said. And so last week we dove into Psalm 51, and a major part of the reason I did it, listen, 150 psalms, how do we choose what psalms to teach if we're not teaching verse by verse through every one of the 150 psalms? Uh, we've selected some. Uh, last week I pointed us towards Psalm 51 because uh, I wanted to, to point you toward a go-to psalm for repentance, that is, when you have found yourself just laid open by your own sin and the need to repent and get in that space with God where everything's kind of clear, um, Psalm 51 is that psalm, or one of those psalms. Certainly, to me, it's a magnificent one. This week, I'm pointing you to Psalm 103 because I want you to have a go-to psalm for praise. Um, just, just to go and magnify God. Sometimes we, it just helps to have the words. Somebody, you know, David pins all these amazing psalms and some of the other psalmists. We've spent a lot of our time in David's psalms, but I, that's why I'm pointing us to Psalm 103. Is that I want you to have a go-to psalm where you know what? I just need to praise God. And, and this will help give language to that. So let's read Psalm 103. It's 22 verses. We'll read it, then we'll pray and dive right in. Psalm 103, it tells us that it's a psalm of David, and it begins like this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. 
Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Father God, we bless your name. We come to you this morning with the spirit of praise, God just to magnify your name, just to thank you and praise you and bless you for who you are and all that you've done. Father God, we pray that you would be glorified in our time this morning. Teach us and lead us and stir us to be people who praise you with whole hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, let's dive in. First thing I want to point you to is verse 1 and verse 22, okay? The beginning and end of the psalm. Verse 1 begins like this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And verse 22 ends like this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. David begins and ends this psalm the exact same way. And that is with a call to his own soul to bless the Lord. He's talking to himself. He says, listen, soul, bless the Lord, praise God, magnify his name. That's what he's saying. So he stirs his own soul to praise God. And he says, with all that is within me, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. He's saying, listen, with everything that I am, with every fiber of my being, soul, you need to praise and bless God. Sometimes you just need to stir yourself to praise God. So maybe you don't always feel like just magnifying God or praising God or singing hymns of praise to God. And sometimes you just need to talk to yourself and say, listen, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and stir yourself to praise him as intensely as you can with all that is within you. I, I, I was kind of cut to the heart as I read that earlier this week. I thought, do I praise God that intensely? Can I say that when I praise God, I praise him with all that is within me? That kind of intensity. And that's what David is doing here, stirring himself, saying, you know what? No, more, there's more. Praise him with everything that's in me. Bless his name. I love that this psalm asks God for nothing. There's no petitions for help or cries for deliverance in this psalm. Not that those are bad. There are plenty of psalms that do that. And they're there for a reason, because it's okay, and it's good to do that too. But I love that this psalm just praises God for who he is and what he's done. It's so important to take note of that, because I think we have to have moments like that, where we come to God with no other agenda, no other petition or request, just to praise him, just to lift his name up, just to magnify him and thank him and go, God, you're amazing. And I just want to worship you right now. We should have times of worship alone with the Lord. <clears throat> just pure gratitude and praise. It's a beautiful psalm. That's why I wanted to put it before us. And so in terms of an outline for the psalm, here's how we're going to tackle this psalm. There's a hundred ways we could have go. Here's, here, here's how we're going to go, okay? Part A we're going to talk about remembering the goodness of God. And part B, we're going to talk about responding to the goodness of God. So let's dive in. Part A, remembering the goodness of God. Look at verse 2. It says this, 
Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. When David stirs his own soul to praise God, he does so by reminding himself of all the reasons he has to praise God. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and don't forget all the reasons you have to do so. Don't forget all the benefits of following and knowing and serving the Lord. We're forgetful creatures. And the Bible is packed with admonitions to remember. It says, remember. Remember what the Lord has done for you. When he said, when the Israelites are getting ready to go into the promised land, uh, God spoke a word to them. And he says, listen, when you get into the promised land and you start enjoying the fat of the land and everybody's healthy and things are good and you're eating well, don't forget that it's the Lord, I, the Lord, who brought you there. Don't forget. So the Bible's packed with this. Reminders to remember. It says, remember that God has done this. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna want to kind of veer towards this tendency to think that it was your hand that somehow provided this blessing for you. You're going to want to think that, oh, I was just industrious enough and that's why I've got so much food on my table. Or I somehow just, by virtue of my good living, I earned this from God. And he's saying, no, no, no. Remember, it's God who has just blessed you with this. Don't forget that. So we're told over and over again, and here it says, forget not, don't forget all the benefits. So listen, we always caution, and I tend to caution about, let's not serve God as a means to an end. And what I mean by that is I, I always, like, a lot of people are following Jesus, but it's because, it's not because Jesus is their true desire, it's because they think if I follow Jesus, he'll lead me to this other thing that's what I truly want. So if I follow Jesus, he'll give me peace. Or if I follow Jesus, he'll give me hope. Or if I follow Jesus, he'll give me provision. Or if I follow Jesus, he'll provide something else for me. And that's really the thing that you're worshiping. And really, if you could have that without Jesus, you'd take it. So I, I, I warn, and we should, we should warn against worshiping God that way as a means to an end. He is the end. He is our hope, he is our joy, he is our provision, he's our provider, he's our everything. And so when you yearn for that thing, you're yearning for God. So it's, it's important to remember that. And yet, there's nothing wrong with, as long as we get the order right, remembering the benefits. Okay? So we caution about, and I would caution you, don't worship God for the benefits. Right? Let me put it this way. Don't worship the benefits. Praise God for the benefits. And that's what this psalm is saying. Don't forget him. Now that you got the order right and, and he's the one that you're truly seeking and desiring, don't forget what comes along with being a child of God. It's okay to remember it. And so remind yourself of all that God has done for you. And David lists at least five things here. We're going to tackle them quickly because my timer's running. <laughs> Number one. He says, God forgives. God forgives. Verse amen. three, amen and amen. He says, let me read verse two again. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And the first thing he lists right here in verse three, who forgives all your iniquity. Say all. All. All your iniquity. Iniquity is sin, it's it's transgressions, it's sinfulness, it's, it's deep, entrenched, even repeated transgressions. forgives all your iniquity. We need to remember that God doesn't owe us this. 
sometimes, especially if we follow God for any length of time, we start to kind of just absentmindedly, that's a given. You know, we just think, oh, that's a, forgiveness is a given. It's not a given. He doesn't owe one human being forgiveness. It's a gift. It's a gift that we walk in and we live in moment by moment, day by day, week by week, year by year, and without it, we're lost. You want to appreciate the forgiveness of God and remember the benefit that is forgiveness? Just think of and meditate on where we would be without it. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. I love this. It says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in, look at this phrase again, it's everywhere in the Psalms, steadfast love. Steadfast love is faithful love, love that doesn't quit, love that doesn't end, love that doesn't give up on you. He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He steps on and treads out our sinfulness. He says, you will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. Or as David put it in an earlier psalm, Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. He says he doesn't even take it into account for the child of God. It's not reckoned to your account. It was reckoned to Christ's account. Which is great news, because like I used to think, like when I first got saved and start, first started to follow, really follow Jesus, you know, I thought, oh, praise God, all my sins are forgiven. And now I better be really good, because all my past sins were forgiven, and now, right? So I, I, it's almost like I imagined that there was this, like, bank account, this vault of terrible sins that I had kind of uh, built up, and then, I, oh, I, uh, I'm following Jesus now, I made a decision to to, you know, receive and believe in and follow like Christ and what he did for me on the cross and woo, the joy of, and the cleansing of all of my sins are forgiven. And then I sinned again. <laughs> and I was like, wait a second. Yep. Wait a second. And I knew, but I knew it wasn't going to be perfect. But then I like sinned and I, and I sinned again. And, then I sinned, and I was like, wait a second. I'm, and I felt like I had this idea like I was building up a new account now. He'd forgiven my old debt, but now I'm building up a new debt. It says, blessed is a man against whom the Lord doesn't even count your iniquity. It doesn't even go into your account. Now, does, that doesn't mean that God doesn't want to convict us and, of our sin and lead us in paths of righteousness. We've seen that plenty of it's just that it's not about just trying harder to be a good boy or girl because all my past sins are forgiven and now i got to fly right. It's now all of my iniquity removed. It's not even taken to my account. And now for joy over that, I want to live differently. You see the difference in motive? Breathe that in. 
Come to this psalm and read that line and don't just gloss over it. Who forgives all your iniquity? Breathe that in. What a gift. What a gift that keeps giving. Number two, God heals. God heals. Look at verse three. Who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Scholars disagree whether this is talking about spiritual or physical healing. Pentecostal and non-Pentecostal scholars alike, okay? They disagree on whether this verse here specifically is talking about spiritual or physical healing. But I would say, and maybe this is wrong, but I would say it hardly matters because both are true. And here's what I mean by that. So first, God does heal us spiritually. He heals us spiritually. Scripture often uses parallelism where healing is 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 a picture of spiritual forgiveness. So in Isaiah chapter 1 and Jeremiah chapter 30, the, the people of Israel are described as a person who is sick and wounded from head to toe with no one to heal them. And it's talking about their sinfulness. Saying you're sick and you're wounded from head to toe. And there's no one to heal you. And then later presents Christ as a healer. And so the Old Testament disease and sickness is often used as a metaphor for sin. You're sick, you're diseased with sin, we're corrupted with it, we're infected with it. That's what the Old Testament does all the time. And it says, God is your healer, he will heal you spiritually. Scripture does that all the time. In some places, the context makes it very, very, very clear that we're talking about, okay, this is a spiritual healing that's being spoken of here. So sometimes the Bible speaks of healing. When it does so, it means spiritual healing. But God also heals physically. Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, God reveals himself to the Israelites as the Lord, your healer. The Lord, your healer. And it's virtually impossible to look at and meditate on the life and ministry of Jesus without talking about his miracles of physical healing. Blind eyes open, deaf ears open, the dead even raised to life. It's, it's impossible to look at the life and ministry of Jesus without seeing physical healing. And so I believe what this psalm is saying, at least in part, is that there is not, when it says he heals all your diseases, there is not a sickness or disease that our God cannot heal. I personally, and this may trip some of you out if you haven't been around this, but I have personally seen, watched tumors disappear. I remember, this stands out in my mind like crazy. I remember watching, and vividly, watching a woman with a tumor, like a, a nearly, it's like a half a softball on the, size of, on the side of her neck, and somebody just laying hands on her and praying for her and asking God to heal her and watching that tumor disappear. I remember, I'm like blown away by that. I've seen Blind eyes open and deaf ears open. And I, I'll guarantee you, Joe could go on for probably two hours about the miracles that he's seen God do, a physical healing, and maybe others in this room. God has the power to heal every yes. sickness yes. and disease. My mom diagnosed with kidney failure. And we prayed. We ask God to heal her. We come back, 
She goes back to the doctor a week, two weeks later, something like that, and they're confounded. It's not like your kidneys have improved. It's like you got a kidney transplant. It's like you got new kidneys. Funny thing, that's what we ask God for. Lord, give her new kidneys. That's what we pray. So I know that's crazy, that's wild, but this is our God still has the power to heal. His power to heal has not been diminished in the least. Yeah. Now, where many people may differ is that, and, and, and I would say, I don't, I don't think in this context here that this is a blanket promise that God will heal every believer of every sickness or every disease that they will ever encounter in this life from their eyes, no infirmity. So wherever we land, we can, we can have great, and, and, and we do, some great and robust debates and dialogues about this and, and go back and forth. Here's the one thing we can all agree on. God heals and will absolutely, either in this life or in the age to come, heal every one of his kids. So we should pray for that now. We should pray for it we should ask God to do it because every healing that we experience now is a foretaste of the coming kingdom. It's a foretaste of future glory. It is a, it is a taste. It's like, it's like, here's the appetizer. This is what's coming for everybody. God heals. God heals. And so let's stand in faith. First thing I'm going to do, somebody, you come to me sick and say, I need you to pray for me. The first thing I'm going to do is ask God to heal you. And it's wild how many times he just answers that prayer. <laughs> so praise the Lord, your healer. Number three, God redeems. Look at verse four, who redeems your life from the pit. Who redeems your life. What does it mean to redeem? To redeem means to purchase or to assess the value of something and make a payment to purchase it, right? To assess, okay, I'm looking at this thing. I think it's this valuable to me. I'm willing to pay this much and pay that much to redeem it. Actually, picture something that's actually like an object that's headed for the trash heap. And yet you decide there's value enough in that to buy it back and keep it and turn it into something, okay? Great picture of this is like recycling, <laughs> okay? Think of this every time you see a recycling place or every time you see your bottles and cans, okay? Think of a, a, of a can. Oh, here we go. We brought a can. Think of a can used, used up. The owner doesn't want it anymore because what good is that to me? So it's going in the trash. Wait a second. It's valuable to somebody. They see something in it. They say, I can take that. I'll actually pay for it and I'll turn it into something else. And so that's why on every one of these it says CRV, California Redemption Value. This thing is valuable to the state of California. It says, don't throw it in the trash. Hang on, hold, hold, hold up. I know that's worthless to you. It's not worthless to me. I'll buy it. I'll buy it. I'll take it and I'll make it into something else. That's redemption. Yeah. California Redemption Value. I will redeem that. Okay, so I want, you, I want you to think of that. Someone sees value in it and is even willing to pay for it and take it and make it into something new. Which brings up a really important point. 
is that the value of an object is determined by how much someone is willing to pay for it. So the state of California looks at that and says, I'm willing to pay this much for that. That's how valuable it is to me. So that object's worth was determined by the state of California that it's worth this much for me to buy it back and turn it into something else. Now let me repeat this again and I want you to make it personal because if you're sitting here feeling even slightly worthless this morning, let me repeat this for you. The value of an object, or in this case, the value of you, is determined by how much someone is willing to pay for it. And so how much was God willing to pay to redeem your life from destruction? Because all of us were headed for the trash heap. And God looked out and he says, you know, hang on, hold on. I know that's worthless to you, world, but they're not worthless to me. I will pay for that one. And here's how much I'm willing to pay. Here's how valuable that one is to me. So when God assessed your worth, how much did he determine that you were worth? How much was he willing to pay for you to redeem your life, to take you off of the trash heap, make you his own, and turn you into something new? How much was God willing to pay? First Peter chapter 1, verse 18 and 19 in the NIV says this, For you know that it was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from that empty way of life handed down to you by your ancestors, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus paid the highest possible price, his own life, to redeem your life from the trash heap. Let me put it another way. That's how valuable you are to him. When the world's ready to throw you at the trash heap, when you're headed for destruction, as this verse says, God looked down and says, no, 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 no. That one's valuable to me, and here's how valuable that one is. I will pay my life to have that one. This psalm is saying to you this morning, don't forget that. Don't forget your value to God. Number four, God crowns. God crowns. Verse 4 says this, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who crowns you? We don't use that language all the time. What does that mean? To be crowned with something. Well, I, I went and looked it up. And uh, in the Hebrew, crown, to crown someone meant to encircle them. And I actually used it in many verses, scripture verses, in terms of like to circle, circle somebody for attack or for protection. So imagine being surrounded and circled because you're either being attacked or being protected from something, okay? So to be encircled for attack or for protection. Hang on, so which one is it? The context is going to tell us. It really, really matters. So it also means to encompass or to surround. 
Think of, oh, you know, we've got you surrounded. We've got you surrounded. There's nowhere to go. You can't escape. We've got you surrounded. So we are encircled, encompassed, surrounded by what? Who crowns you, encircles you, surrounds you with steadfast love and mercy. Last week in Psalm 51, we saw that, and this phrase keeps popping up, we saw that God is steadfast in love and abundant in mercy. Two weeks ago in Psalm 23, we saw that goodness and mercy, there's that abundant mercy again, will follow us, that is chase after us, pursue us all the days of our lives. So God is steadfast in love, abundant in mercy. His mercy actually pursues us. And now this week, the psalmist says that we are surrounded by God's steadfast love and mercy. So you pull all of this together. We are surrounded on all sides by a love and mercy that pursues and chases us. We're being attacked by mercy. We can't escape it. We're surrounded by him. It's abounding towards us. That's what it means to be crowned with steadfast love. And we are surrounded. We're encircled. We're encompassed. And David is so overwhelmed by this idea that actually he mentions it here in verse 4, but then he comes back around to it and elaborates on this love and mercy and grace of God. And he elaborates on that in verses 8 through 17. Let's go quickly through that. Look at verse 8. He says this. The Lord, here it is again, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Where'd David get that from? We talked about this last week. David knows that because of Exodus chapter 34, verse six. This is how God revealed himself to Moses. God shows up, reveals himself to Moses and God described himself. And this is Exodus 34, verse six. God himself describing himself says this. I am the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So David quotes it verbatim here in Psalm 103 when he says in verse 8, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It meant a lot to David because he quotes it again in Psalm 145 verse 8. What does that mean? David knew and clung to and lived by this truth that God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He knew it, he clung to it, and he lived by it, and we should do the same. Verses 9 and 10, he's elaborating on all of this. He says, he will not always chide or scold or rebuke or correct us. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. I can think of, it's hard to think of a more beautiful promise in all of scripture than that. This is one of the most beautiful promises in all of scripture. If God dealt with us according to our sin or made us pay what we owed, every one of us would be dust for eternity. And yet the promise here is that God doesn't deal with us according 
to our sin or make us pay according to our iniquity. Remember what we said last week? God is not looking to make you pay. Christ has paid. He doesn't want your payment. He wants your repentance. He wants your faith. He wants your trust. He wants your heart. Verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love, there it is again, towards those who fear him. That is to say that God's love is higher and greater than we can possibly fathom. Verse 12. As far as it just keeps going and just building like this big crescendo. Verse 12. As far as the east is from the west so far. That's how far he removes our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west. That is God has removed our sin from us completely. As far as east is from west. Now this is an interesting little anecdote. I don't know the science behind this. Somebody might get nitpicky and come and say, no, that's not true. But here's a, it's an interesting little anecdote that I've seen uh, before. I think it's really cool. North and south have defined geographic reference points on the earth. That is the north and south geographic poles, right? So that if you're standing at the north pole, the only available direction for you to travel is south or some variation of south, southeast, southwest, the only available, if you're standing at the North Pole, the only available direction to you is south. And, and vice versa, if you're standing at the South Pole, the only available direction for you is north or some variation of north. On the other hand, east and west are points that are defined relative to wherever you're currently at. So that if I travel east, there's never a point in which I will be said to be traveling west. <laughs> I, I'm, gonna let, I'm gonna let this linger for a second until you realize what that means for you in this little anecdote. That means that if my sin is east and I'm going west by God's hand, there is never a point when I will revisit or bring back up that point. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far he's removed our transgressions from us. So if I was going north-south, oh, there it is again, it's up in my face, and here it is, oh, north pole again, north pole again, north pole again. Oh, there it is, I can't get away from it, just north pole, north pole, always coming back up in my life. But it doesn't say as far as the north is from the south as he removed your sins from you. It says as far as the east is from the west. Verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God is pictured here as a compassionate father. What a tender, personal picture this is. If we could hold verses 19 and 13 together, we'd have a good theology. What does verse 19 say? Verse 19 says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Well, we need the greatness of God. We need to know that. His sovereignty, his greatness, his dominion. But we also need to know verse 13. And we need to hold them together. Verse 13, As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Oh, you see it. It's the greatness of God and the goodness of God in one hand. Just all there together. I don't separate them. 
His kingdom rules over all. He's that great. And he, like a father, has compassion on his children. They're simultaneously true. You see the tenderness of God. Verse 14. For he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. God is merciful and compassionate because he knows our weaknesses. Scripture tells us one of the beauties of, no other religion can say this, one of the beauties of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is that Scripture says he, he, he understands. He gets it. He knows because he became a man. And he says he was tempted at all points like us. The only difference is he was without sin, but he knows he's felt. He relates to our human frailty and weakness and temptations and struggles. So he has compassion. He has mercy. This is because he knows our frame and he remembers that we're dust. Verses 15 through 17. As for man, his days are like grass and he flourishes like a flower of the field, but the wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. But... Here it is again. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. We are meant to see the contrast here between the finite nature of man, or like a, like a flower that just blooms and then is gone. So we're meant to see the contrast between the finite nature of man and the infinite nature of God. His love is from everlasting to everlasting. We're finite, he's infinite. We are finite beings. He's an infinite being. We're meant to see that contrast here, but it draws it in this way. It says, man, we're like dust, but he will love you and care for you for eternity. When it talks about the infinite nature of God, it talks about his infinite faithful love for you. So, all on this fourth point, we are crowned, surrounded with, surrounded by this forgiving mercy and steadfast, eternal love of God. Number five, God satisfies. God satisfies. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Our souls are created to find their ultimate satisfaction in God. So what, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but what does it mean for us to be satisfied in God? This definitely speaks of God's ability to provide and to provide so sufficiently that we're actually satisfied. So it does speak of God's provision. Listen, God is able to satisfy you, to fully satisfy you for all eternity. He is the living water that quenches your truest and deepest thirst forever. And it also speaks of, when we talk about being satisfied, it also speaks of our contentment and satisfaction in him. So it's his ability to satisfy us and our, our satisfaction, taking satisfaction and finding satisfaction in him. Amen. Scripture tells us that those who hunger and thirst for God will be satisfied by him. Psalm chapter 63, verses one through five. Let me read those really quick. Oh God, my, he says, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. 
My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory because your steadfast love, there it is again, is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I'll bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. That sounds like good food. <laughs> the psalmist says that his soul will be satisfied when? When he sees God and experiences God's steadfast love. He says, this is what I'm hungry for. And this is what will truly satisfy me for all eternity, your presence and your steadfast love. That's what will truly satisfy him. What will truly satisfy me? Is my soul satisfied in him? Because he's more than able to satisfy me. Do I find satisfaction in him and in his steadfast love? Or am I seeking it somewhere? What do we talk about in Psalm 23? Am I drinking from polluted pools trying to be, have my thirst quenched? It says he will satisfy you. And he'll satisfy you with good. Think about this. It says he'll satisfy you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Every good and perfect gift comes from God. You got any good and perfect gift in your life? It's a gift from God. And he satisfies you with good. Are we satisfied? <laughs> with the good that God provides. And so these five things, we remember, since we do not forget these things, we remember these expressions of the goodness of God, that God forgives and heals and redeems and crowns and satisfies us. And so we must respond. How do we respond? So responding to the goodness of God. Three things. Quickly. Because I'm three minutes over. And the first two may be surprising because we would think, well, I, and these are true, we would think, oh, how do I respond to the goodness of God? Oh, I just enjoy it. Yes, that's true. That is really true. And actually, that should be one of my points. I'm just thinking of it now, so it's too late. But we enjoy it and we praise God. Yes, we're going to get there. But the first two are actually here in this psalm and it's an interesting way to respond, but it's an important way to respond when we're confronted with the great goodness of God. Number one, fear him. Fear him. Let me unpack that. Let's read verses 11, 13, and 17. Verse 11 says this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Verse 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Verse 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. What does that mean? God gives me all these good things so I'll be afraid of him? God gives me all these good things so I'll live in terror of his presence? Fear here must and does mean awe and reverence and honor I see the great goodness that God has amply provided and provides for me. And I'm in awe. I'm in awe of him because no one else can do that. No one else can do what he does. 
There's no God like him. He alone deserves all my reverence. He alone deserves all my awe and wonder and worship. When was the last time you were just slain by wonder? Just awed by God, just awestruck by God's goodness. God, I'm just in awe of you and how good you are. And I worship you for that because no one else is that good and no one else is that wonderful and no one else is that. So I feel the fear of God is just be awestruck with reverence and honor and wonder at just his great goodness. Number two, we obey him. We obey him. I'm going to read verses 17 through 21. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Obedience was just emphasized five times in the verses we just read. Let me point them out to you. Verse 18, there's two of them there. Verse 18, to those who keep his covenant. And again in verse 18, who remember to do his commandments. Verse 20, there's two of them there also. Bless the Lord, are you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. And then again, right, next breath, obeying the voice of his word. Verse 21, bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers, who what? Do his will. Our fear of God and our love of God and our joy in God is expressed over and over again by our obedience to God. And Jesus in the New Testament would say, if you love me, obey my word. If you love me, obey my commands. Now, how many of you know we can't do that except for by the help of the Holy Spirit? Number three, because I have to land. We respond to the goodness of God. We praise him. So we fear him, we obey him, and number three, we praise him. Let me read verses 19 through 22 again, and it will land. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works and all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So verse 22 just said that God should be praised in all places of his dominion. Where is that? Good answer. And we learned that from a few verses earlier in verse 19 where it says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. So where's his dominion? All. All. It's everywhere, everyone, everything, everywhere. And then verse 22 said, bless him in all places of his dominion. Abraham Kuyper, I think I, I butchered that name, but he was a Dutch theologian in the late 1800s and early 1900s. He said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So what this psalm just told us is that God deserves the praise 
of everyone and everything in all creation everywhere. The stars should praise him and the rocks should praise him and the ocean should clap its hands to the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. It's been said that missions exist because worship doesn't. So, in other words, wherever there is a lack of worship, there should be an intensity of mission. Why? Because God wants to save those people in there? Yes. But primarily because God deserves their praise. It's primarily about him. Why do we share the good news of the gospel? Because because these people need to be saved? Yes, but primarily because God deserves their worship. Because God is so good that he deserves the praise of everything and everyone everywhere so that where where there is no praise, there should be mission. In closing this psalm, David calls on all creation to praise God. Watch how he does it. Verse 20, he calls on the angels. He says, bless the Lord, O you his angels. Verse 21, he calls on everyone who serves the Lord. Verse 21, he says, bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. God's hosts, ministers anywhere, everywhere, anyone who does the will of God, everyone who serves him, bless the Lord. Verse 22, he says, bless the Lord, all his works. That's why Jesus would say, if these people don't praise me, even the rocks would cry out. It says, in Romans, it says, creation is groaning now, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God and the glory of God. Creation praises. The Psalms earlier would tell us that the heavens declare the glory of God. They're praising him all the time. The star shines as praise to God. In verse 22, he again calls upon his own soul. Bless the Lord, O my soul. In his commentary on this psalm, William MacDonald wrote this. The Lord is king. His throne is in the heavens and his authority is universal. As such, he should be the object of praise by everyone and everything. And so David steps up to lead the massed choir of creation in a mighty chorus of worship. First, he motions to the angels. Then he calls on all created beings who serve the Lord. Next, he signals all the works of God to join the glorious crescendo. And while the great hallelujah chorus is ringing throughout God's dominion, the choir leader himself adds his own voice to bless the Lord. You see why this is called the Mount Everest of praise songs. Will you add your voice? Will you join in this great chorus of saints and angels and all of creation in unified worship of God who deserves our praise? I pray that this morning, if you find yourself not in a position or posture, heart, place of praise, that you and I both will remind ourselves of all of his benefits. 
and stir our own souls to bless him and fear him and obey him and praise him with every fiber of our being, with all that is within us. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that you would be glorified. We pray, God, that you would open our lips, that we would declare your praises with the angels and all of creation and everyone who serves you in all places of your dominion everywhere. We pray this in Jesus' name.